0: Hi, I'm Carl Cavazzo and you're banging your head on Focus on Metal.
1: Hey, Metalhead Scott Thompson here welcoming you to that which since 2010 has been known as Focus on Metal. I know what you're saying. Why now? On episode 392, do you suddenly point out that it's been known as that since 2010? Well, it's because it's another anniversary show. That's right. Uh, You know, a few weeks ago, we celebrated uh, with James Kotak with the 30th anniversary of the self-titled Kingdom Come release. And this week, a little project that Richie was putting together as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of the QR release from Quiet Riot. And I know you're saying, why were you celebrating the uh, QR release from Quiet Riot when... A lot of people really look uh, look down on that one. Well, one, because nobody else is going to do it. We always like to try to be a little bit different. But also, you know, we've had uh, three out of the four guys that are on that album have been on the show at various times. We've had Paul Shortino on twice, and we've also had Sean McNabb on. And as of this week, we will also have uh, Carlos Cavazzo on. So the only other outstanding person on that album would be, of course, uh, Frankie Benelli. So I think that taking all that into account is uh, a pretty good response to be celebrating uh, the QR album. So there you go. That is what is in store for the show this week. So uh, we'll start it off with a chat that Richie had with Carlos Cavazo. So. Pretty great having Carlos on the show. And we will follow that up with a long conversation that Richie had with Paul Shortino just a a little short period of time after the Carlos conversation. And, you know, Paul's going to talk all about some pre-days of Quiet Riot, what he was doing winding down Rough Cut and then into the album, as well as giving us the uh, latest updates on what's going on with Raiding the Rock Vault. And at the very tail end of uh, Paul's conversation, It's going to give us a little insight on what else he's got going, some special solo projects with some great guests and all that. So you get that whole scoop at the very tail end of Richie's talk with Paul. And, you know, within this whole thing, we'll also sprinkle you in some samples of the Quiet Riot QR release, sometimes also known as QR4, as we celebrate the fact that 30 years ago this month, in uh, 1988, that puppy rolled out. So let's spin a little bit and go right into Richie's conversation with Carlos Cavazo.
2: is um, I really want to get in depth with you about the, the 1988 album you did with uh, Paul Schertino.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Um I'm a huge fan of that record oh thank you so you know and whatever else you've got currently going on feel free to uh, discuss that sure whatever yeah. um,
0: discuss anything so.
2: okay so I want to go back a little bit before you did the album with Paul Um uh-huh. when you fired Kevin um out of all of you, who who do you think took the most convincing that that was the right thing to do? Um, when I ask that, I'm talking about the other band members or management, maybe the
0: label. It was a combination of everybody, the band, the label, and the management. They thought Kevin at the time was a detriment to the band's success. And I think it, it you know... His behavior might have been a detriment to the band, but I think getting rid of him was even a bigger detriment. It was probably, the, you know, some the original band's always better, obviously, but I, I did enjoy working with Paul. He's an amazing talent, good songwriter, great singer, and that, that was a good, really good record, but uh, probably didn't get received as well as some of the records that we did with Kevin. You know?
2: Yeah. Now, who, who, who had the job of telling them he was fired?
0: You know, I don't even remember. I probably was our manager.
2: Okay, so that'll be Warren Etner.
0: Yes, correct.
2: Okay, okay. So, wh- when you got rid of Kevin, you, you obviously pro- you sat down and you wanted to change the name of the band. Would that would that be fair to say?
0: Um, no, I, I don't. I don't remember wanting to change the name of the band. Um, uh, I, I I remember just we well, wanted to keep the name maybe it had been mentioned I don't remember now
2: okay so tr- trying to find a replacement singer to sing on, on the next record I, I believe one of the guys you tried was John Karabi um, I don't remember
0: uh, trying John I I don't think we even auditioned that many people at all no, nobody I think we we listened to people's stuff and then we decided on Paul Okay, Because I don't remember auditioning any singers. You know, to be honest with you.
2: Okay, so what? Just people sent in a load of tapes, and you, all of yeah, you guys. Yeah, yeah. And
0: we got a we got a lot of good uh, people, you know, responding, and uh, we we settled on Paul mainly because we knew him and he's from our area, and uh, we we knew his vocal ability from rough cut. You know, we knew he was a great singer. You know.
2: Yeah, and did you did you want a singer that was going to s- suit the style of music? You, you, you were hoping to write, or did it, did it just evolve that way when Paul joined the band anyway?
0: Uh, can you repeat that question one more yeah. time, please?
2: Did you want the singer that suited the style of music that you, you thought you were going to write, or or did it just evolve that way naturally when you got Paul in the band?
0: Uh, I think it just evolved that way naturally when we got Paul in the band, because his type of voice was a little different than Kevin. so I think our writing maybe got a little different to match you know, what he was doing, you know.
2: Yeah, and when you did the audition with, uh, with Paul, can you remember what he sang?
0: Uh, I don't off
2: the top of my head. I think I remember
0: auditioning him, I think, at the recording studio, if I remember right. Okay. That's been so long. Uh, at, at Pasha Studios. I think he came in and he sang over a couple of tracks that we had. Yeah. Uh, that's how we uh, auditioned him.
2: Now, Spencer Proffer was producing all your records at the time. Um, mm-hmm. Did you want to try and get in a diff- and try a different producer, or were you just tied to Spencer because of the, the deal you had?
0: Oh, we were pretty much locked in with him with the deal that we had. But you know, he was a good producer for us at at at, at that time. He, he did he he did it. He made us a hit, and uh, he had a lot of good ideas. He got the best out of us. You know, but. As time went on, I think maybe we just outgrew each other and uh, we wanted to change and you know, he probably wanted a change, I don't know, but uh, that can happen, you know. Yeah. Unfortunately.
2: And how did you get on Carlos with him in the studio personally? Was he, did you find him uh, easy to work with?
0: Uh, not particularly. I think I got along with him better than some of the other guys in the band. Uh um I'm probably a little more tolerant of people than some of the other guys in the band, <laughs> a little easier going personality. And, uh, you know, I, I was, I never gotten any big argument with the guy, but, um, I, I didn't trust him, you know, like he just seemed like he was out looking for himself kind of thing. I don't know.
2: Yeah. It's i you interviewed, um, Dwayne Barron a while ago, the engineer, and uh-huh. I don't know whether you ever worked with Dwayne, because he worked a lot with Spencer. I think you, you might I did, know. I loved Dwayne. Yeah, and he worked with Tom Worman around the same yeah. time he was working with Spencer. Now, I asked him the main difference between the two, and he said that, in general, Tom lets the band be the band, but Spencer yeah. tries to mold the band in the vision that yeah. he thinks it's going to be. Would that be he, correct? I, I believe that, yeah, that's a good statement. Yeah, and well, when you got Paul in, though, he's dealing with a different band. So is he trying to mold you guys to be the older version of Quiet Riot, or is he actually allowing you guys to be the band now, if you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I don't think he was trying to mold us into the
0: old Quiet Riot, no. I I, I think he, was, he understood what Paul was about, more of a bluesier kind of singer, and I think he was trying to go with that. You know, Spencer's not dumb. He, he's smart, you know.
2: Yeah, so Paul came into the fold, and of course he was managed by uh, Wendy Dio, and of course you guys would have been managed by Warren Etner. Did that cause any friction at all, having two managers?
0: Yes, it did. Of course it does, um, you know, because everybody
2: has their own ideas, but um, we tried our best to work through it, and uh, I think we got through it pretty well. Yeah, and when you started to to write the album, um, I believe Chuck Wright was still in the band. Yes. And I know Chuck was kind of, it was like House of Lords was coming up at that time and he, he moved to, he, he moved to them. But mm-hmm. how did that all come about with you guys? Like, were you made aware that that, that was, that was happening at all? Or was it all like behind your back?
0: Um, yeah, we were made aware. Actually, Rudy was going to do it with us too. We rehearsed with Rudy once or twice, but then he took off with Whitesnake. And then, uh, Chuck did that thing with, uh, us for a little bit. Then, went with the house of lords and we ended up getting sean McNabb. okay um
2: did, did you get yeah, a we went
0: through like three, yeah, three guys
2: <laughs> three guys did you get a sense yeah. at all that Chuck wasn't happy with what was happening was it the direction of the music
0: oh uh, yeah i did i mean you can tell when people are just not with it i think he's he had a little high hopes with the house of lords because he always liked playing with that band which i understand you know it's a yeah. good band and nice people. I'm friends with all the, those guys in that band and uh he thought he'd give it another try, I guess, and you know, whatever happened happened. But <laughs> Yeah.
2: So so tell yeah. me about tell me about finding Sean. Uh Sean McNabb was in the
0: uh, Los Angeles club scene playing with some bands and I think Frankie had gone down and, and noticed him and saw him and told me about him and uh, we auditioned him, and he—he's a great guy, nice guy, and uh, played great, looked good, and uh, he fit in really well with us. So you know,
2: he yeah. joined up. He was a lot younger than you guys.
0: Oh yeah, he's like probably at least ten years younger than us. I would think maybe more than that.
2: Yeah, and how, how was he in the studio? Would he would he have been like a pro in the studio when he was that young?
0: Oh yeah, he was never a problem. I, he was always good in the studio and live. You know. And, and, I've worked with him in a lot of things, and he's always on top of it. You know, really good.
2: He always seems to be one of these guys that, you, when you look at all a lot of the hard rock bands, if they needed a bass player, Sean McNabb was one of the guys because he could sing and he could play. Yeah, he's
0: the go-to guy.
2: <laughs> yeah, he you should. He you should be in that hired gun movie. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right, but, uh, right. I've actually met Sean. He's an awesome guy. So
0: he is a really nice guy. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So. You remember the first song or the first set of songs you wrote when you sat down to write that record pardon can you remember the first songs or the first set of songs you wrote when you, when you that, went? that
0: album yeah uh, we got together i think it was like uh call on the shot and uh the joker <laughs>
3: we <laughs> Looking back, this joker takes his queen.
0: God, I, I don't even remember all of it. I, I'm pretty sure those were some of the first ones we worked on.
2: Okay. And, and were, Kostik, were, uh, were any of those ideas left over from the Quiet Right 3 record?
0: Uh, no. No, I think they're all newly pinned. All the stuff I brought in, uh, you know, I, I would bring in riffs, and these guys would help me finish it off. But a lot of the stuff I brought in was, was new. I, I didn't write it when, I was in, you know, when Kevin was in the band.
2: Yeah. And did you jam the ideas out, or did Did you bring in? Yeah, I usually bring an idea into the
0: the band, and it'll either be recorded on a tape, or I'll just play it for them right there. And uh, and sometimes it'll be, uh, I'm not really a lyric writer, but I write the music. And, and sometimes it'll be a complete song. Sometimes it'll just be one part. Sometimes it'll be two or three parts, you know. And I ha- these guys, the rest of the guys and men, help me make it into a song, you know. Or, yeah. Like that, it comes in different ways, you know.
2: Yeah, and would Spencer be involved very early on in the songwriting process?
0: Um, he tried to be at times, and, and, and we would accept his ideas if it was a worthy idea. I mean, we are open to accepting anybody's idea if it was a good idea. If it's not a good idea, forget it, you know. Yeah. But if it works and it sounds better, you know, of course we're going to take the idea.
2: Yeah, and how, how did Trevor Raven get a co-write on King of the Hill?
0: He was a friend of Frankie's, and uh, he had this song that Frankie had heard, and Frankie brought it in, and we worked on it. And, uh, you know, he obviously had credit in the song because he wrote the song. Uh, Mike, we changed it a little bit and added some more parts to it, I believe. I don't uh, remember now, but it was originally his song, uh, the the skeleton of
2: it, you know. Yeah, and you hear a lot of bands from that era, they did bring in 20, 25 songs and pick the best 10 or 11. Did you write mm-hmm. a lot of material for that album? For the fourth album? Yeah. Oh yeah, I probably
0: uh, brought in about uh, probably more than half the songs. Okay. But usually the songs that my name is first—that's the song that I brought in. Okay. So, but, but um, yeah, what I'm t- I'm that's saying? That's the one that I did on, on uh, every every song I wrote. I make that I brought into them, and I make sure my name is first. You know? Okay.
2: Okay. But... Did you did you complete a lot more songs in demo form than actually made it on the record? Uh, yeah, I believe there was a couple other songs that didn't make it on the record. Okay, yeah. and did they end up in Japanese bonus tracks or they're just on? The
0: record? Uh, no, not that I know of. I got any st- songs that didn't make it on any of our records. I have copies of on cassette and CD. You know, over the years I've kept them. You know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And did the label show a keen interest at all in wanting to hear the album as you were making it because it was going to go in a different direction?
0: Um, I think at that point the label was kind of over us, you know, after all the drama that Kevin put him through
2: <laughs> and, you know, all, all that. But I think at that point they were not
0: super hot on us, you know, to be honest with you.
2: Yeah, did you doubt the, the songs at all at any stage during the recording and the writing because it was so different? I'm sorry, I can repeat that. Did you, like, doubt your doubt the songs because they were so different to uh, what, what Quite Right was about before then? Did, did I what? I, did,
0: I'm did sorry,
2: you, I don't understand. Did you, doubt, did you doubt yourself or the songs at all because it was so different that I was going to be going out under the Quite Right name?
0: Uh, no, I just... Um, just For some reason, with Paul, there's, the writing just kind of came naturally. Yeah. We didn't have to... Tr- you know, we we would get together with him, and the way he sang would kind of make our writing change a little bit. It seemed like, you know.
2: Yeah. Was Spencer the go the type of producer that tracked the band live on the floor to get a take?
0: Would try to do what?
2: He, would he track the band playing together live to try and get a take, or would you all record your parts oh, individually?
0: Um, we did all a lot of tracking, a lot of times live bass guitar and drums and even a scratch vocal even with kevin we did it that way pretty much a lot of our recordings uh and and everything would be isolated and usually the the first track we try to just get the good drum sound because we can always redo the bass and redo the guitar and obviously redo the vocals the vocals will always be be a scratch vocal just to keep us you know uh, in tune to where we are in the song you know the chorus the verse you know we won't get lost and the uh, singer would usually sing along just to keep us in uh, in track and then sometimes if my guitar part was great we'd keep that and you know add more to that or if not we'd erase it and just redo it all and same with the bass if the bass was keepable we'd keep that but the main thing was the drums and when you get the perfect drum then we can build around that
2: yeah and paul's vocals um were you in the studio when it, when he recorded these vocals
0: oh yes a lot of times i was sometimes i might not have been. but
2: and was he like a one or two take guy and it was done Oh, yeah, the
0: guy is, he's definitely a pro, and he's unique, and sometimes he might take him a little longer, but uh, depends on if the producer liked what he did, you know, he might want him to change a couple lines here, notes here, but, uh, oh, yeah, Paul was a, uh, you know, he's a pro, definitely a pro.
2: Yeah, and is there any track on that album that really stands out to you? Like, maybe, maybe to, you know, it was tough to write, or, you know, you just love the song itself,
0: uh, probably, um, that ballad. I can't even think of the name off the top of my head on side two.
2: Don't, don't want, uh, don't want to be your fool. Yeah. don't want to be a fool. Yeah. I think that one was the one
0: kind of, you know, it was like that for me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about your experiences of playing shows in Colombia. Um, <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> um, I, I believe it did. Some of it didn't go as, as planned.
0: Uh, well, with Quiet Riot, I've been to Columbia with Quiet Riot, and I have been to Columbia with Rat also. Uh, when I went there with Quiet Riot, it was kind of crazy. They almost didn't want to, we had to miss some show for some reason, and then they held our passports and then wanted to leave the country till we made that show up, but we ended up getting out of it. I can't remember what happened, but uh, there was a problem, not on our end, but on the production end. We couldn't do the show or something. Uh, but then we did a few other shows down there as well. Um, there was a the second show we were supposed to do, though, one time we went down there. And it was crazy when we uh, we also uh, played in Medellin and Pereira. Pereira? And then uh, when we played in Medellin, uh, Pablo Escobar came down to the show. We met him.
2: Oh, nice. <laughs> <It was crazy.
0: laughs> we took pictures with him and everything. He bought down a bunch of pot and cocaine and gave it to us. He had all these hookers with him and stuff. And. It was pretty crazy, man. Meeting him—he's a nice guy, you know. I'd like to get the pictures. Somebody's got pictures of us with him and these girls and stuff. Wow, crazy. <laughs> Very good. I remember that. And then I—I I, I went there with the Rat, and it was probably a little smoother. Uh, but when you're playing those kind of countries, uh, they're great. The people are great, and the, the the fans are just fanatical about you, and and they they love the music. But Sometimes the productions are a little lacking. They're not as, you know, together as American production, maybe, you know. But it, it's, it's 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 like a crazy fun. It is, you know. I, I remember one show we did in, in Mexico where the fans were going so crazy, we, we couldn't even, like, leave in the limousine. We had to get in, a, in an old beat-up ambulance and, like, take off in an ambulance because we couldn't ride in the limo because people were trying to attack the car and stuff.
2: Wow. I was talking... I talked to a lot of musicians and they they all say that the South American fans are probably the craziest.
0: Really crazy. Oh yeah, they light their shirts on fire and uh, they've thrown drugs up on stage, a uh, snake with the head chopped off, I've seen a monkey on stage, uh, uh, you know, underwear, uh food, uh you know, knives, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Knives?
3: Wow. Yeah.
0: And some guy had a monkey on a leash, let it go all over the stage, really long leash. <laughs> and one time I, I saw a chopped up uh, snake with a head chopped off right next to my pedal board. I go, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at the stage, my note, my sound.
2: He hit a pedal,
0: and I see a snake right there. I go, oh, my God.
2: You're probably thinking to yourself, I'm just playing guitar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what the hell is going on? Yeah. That was pretty cool. Have, have you ever gone into um, a country, and- for whatever political reason at the time, you kind of feared for your safety? Uh,
0: probably uh, South America, um, because it's a very military state, for, for sure, like uh, Colombia. Everywhere we went, there were soldiers with guns and all over the concert, everywhere. Um, but, you know, actually, I did do uh, shows with, uh, with Big Noise, a band I was working with, with Jolyn Turner, Vinny Apice, and Phil Susan. And and we went to Iraq and Kuwait and played for the military, and that was probably one of the craziest things. Like, I don't know if I feared for my life because we had the protection of all the soldiers and the the army uh, camps and stuff. We never left the camps. We went to like, I think we went to like nine different army camps and played. Wow. But uh, we had protection and all that, and it was kind of like being in the army for for uh, twelve days. We were gone for twelve days, I think. Wow. We had to, you know, we had got issued an army helmet and a flat jacket a troop jacket, and all that stuff. Because uh, we had to take off like flying helicopters like at two in the morning, go to the next camp. Oh, I'm sorry, my dog is working. <laughs> and um, we had to, on the, when we flew in on the helicopters, we had to wear these helmets and bulletproof jackets because sometimes they shoot at you and stuff coming into the camps. And they, they had to protect us, and it was pretty crazy. I was a few times I was scared for my life because uh, you'd be sleeping in the middle of the night and you'd hear that uh, alarm going off, and, and they tell you if you hear these incoming missiles, you're like, You got to run and hide in these bunkers and stuff. It was like, "What?" You know? one, one, and Thank again, God, nothing like that. Thank God, nothing like that ever happened.
4: Uh, uh, and know, it-
0: they, have, they have it so wired down there that, that, that this camp has like these, like blimps flying really high above like a bunch of them and they they see everything around them and any movement out in the desert they send teams of soldiers out there to see what's going on and everything nobody can even get near their camps
2: and again carlos you're thinking to yourself i just want to stand up here and play guitar <laughs> <laughs> it
0: was pretty funny yeah we had a good time though we got to play for all the military people out there and it was, they really treated us really good yeah And even Quiet Ride did a lot of military shows, but we played them here in the US. We never went to like Iraq or something like that, you know? Yeah, yeah.
3: Gotta get closer to you Time to make me got my everything i wanted more than I'm for.
2: So, after the Columbia shows, um we went to Japan again. now Spoken to. I nearly—I always ask them this question. What are some of the gifts that the Japanese fans have given you? Because I believe they give great gifts to all the musicians.
0: You know, you're right. They're, they're really big on giving gifts to, to, to bands. Uh, I've gotten all kinds of stuff. Actually, right now, I got this little doll, like a doll someone made of me and my wife has in her office, but I've had it since, like, 83. They, they give you jewelry, uh, toys they make for you. Um, you know, images of you, paintings of yourself. Um, you know, weird stuff. They're really crafty. They like to make things for you.
2: Okay, I think um, I can't remember who it was I was talking to. He said he mentioned off the cuff in an interview one time that he needed socks or something when he was on tour, and when he arrived over to Japan, there was hundreds and hundreds of pairs of socks waiting for him. <laughs> I
0: believe that. That's how they are. They, they they they'll help you in any way they can. They're such hospitable people. Definitely.
2: Yeah. So, was the mood in the camp still upbeat when you went to Japan to tour that record?
0: Was the mood? I mean,
2: it was good with me. I know those was uh, you know
0: issues other other, other areas, but I, my mood was good. I liked playing with Paul. and I liked playing with the band, and I had a good time over there. But. I think that was some of the last shows we did. I think it was because the band kind of broke up after that.
2: Yeah. Do you remember, was it one thing that happened that caused the band to split or was it just the culmination of a lot of things?
0: I think it was just a lack of success. You know, record sales weren't as good. Uh, um, it was getting harder to book shows and get good prices. I think it was just a combination of that and the success, success dwindling a little bit, you know, going down, doing a little bit is the word I'm looking for. Um, that's the only thing I could think of, you know, really. Yeah.
2: And were you bitterly disappointed that it, like, yeah, it course, didn't you mean? know, um, um, yeah, you know, you, you want
0: to everything that you do to be, you know, successful, obviously, but, um, times changed towards the end of the eighties there and, uh, you know, different kind of music was taken over, which is understandable. Every decade changes, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And have you kept in touch with Paul at all? Oh yeah, I talk to Paul all the time Yeah, And actually I I want to tell you I talk
0: to Dwayne Barron all the time Once in a while Because uh, he produced uh, a Snow album That uh, my band Snow just recently put out We finally got a record deal After 35, 40 years <laughs> <laughs> we, we released uh, a bunch of that material That we recorded back there In the early 70s I mean uh, later 70s Before I was in choir And actually the original version Of Heads on that record too Oh
2: nice Didn't And do
0: that- uh, he, he produced it
2: nice didn't you um you played some shows with snow earlier in the year didn't you or was that last year
0: yes we did uh just a couple reunion shows i think we did one about five years ago and one uh, recently with the original singer the one we did about five years ago the original singer couldn't make it so we had a different guy sit in okay okay and
2: you've recorded new music with the band that's fantastic
0: uh no we're not recording any new music Uh, a lot of the stuff is just stuff we recorded. Uh, The the, the CD that we put out is a a double CD set. It's got uh, live from the Starwood in 1981, and then some music we recorded from like 78 through 81 in various studios.
2: Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Do you think you'll do new music with the band then, or you just going to leave it as is?
0: Uh, But we probably leave
2: it as is. I don't know
0: if uh, we want to continue with new music. We might. We talked about it, but right at the moment, we haven't done anything.
2: Yeah. So Carlos, what else are you, you 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 know you're doing at the moment, music wise? Like who are you playing with?
0: Uh right now I'm not really looking to do anything. I've had a few offers. You know, I'm not playing with Rat anymore, obviously. Um those guys for whatever reason fired Warren D Martin. I said, you know, there's no way I can continue without Warren. And I don't want to be in a band that's falling apart like that. I went through that with Quiet Riot. I don't want to do that again. And you know I like playing with the original members, I, I was kind of bummed that that Bobby Blotcher was let go from the band, and, and you know, although we did get, you know, uh, Jimmy DeGrosso in there, and he's a great drummer and great guy, and he's a good friend of mine, but, you know, I was kind of hating to see Bobby go, and it's kind of better to play the original band, you know?
2: Yeah, I saw you guys in, um, you played in the Worcester Palladium in, uh, in Worcester Mass last year, it was a fantastic show. Oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, That was last year? Last year, yeah, you would Warren Yourself, um, yeah. Stephen, Juan, and
0: Jimmy. Worcester, Mask. I don't remember that. One.
2: <laughs> they all meld into into one as time yeah, goes on when you're on and, tour. Uh,
0: Worcester. What was the name of the venue?
2: The Palladium. Palladium.
0: Uh, uh, I could probably remember if I think about it a little further. Yeah, it's too bad. I, I like. I really enjoyed playing with him. I have to say, I had more fun playing with Rat than Quiet Riot.
2: <laughs> wow.
0: Quiet Riot was little on edge all the time. I mean, these guys have their problems too, but it's probably not as bad as, you know, the quiet riot problems, you know? Okay. There was a lot of and quiet riot and hatred and, you know, yeah.
2: unfortunately. Now, as a fan, and I'm a fan, right, one of the things I can't understand with all a lot of these 80s bands, right, and feel free to agree or disagree with me because I, you're in the industry and I'm not. When yeah. you're in your mid-50s and you don't have that many years left, I don't understand why you just can't do it for the next couple of years, make as much money as you can and then stop. You're right. You should, everybody should just get along just to have a career you know, and have a, uh, a livelihood and
0: have some income, you know, but and yeah. it is what it is. It's just monetary greed and, uh, you know, monetary differences and control, you
2: know? Yeah. Yeah. So just, just before I leave you go, Carlos, um, where would you rank that, the Quiet Right album with Paul in the albums that, that you played on in Quiet Right? Would it be your favorite, or where, where, would, you, where, would, where would you put it?
0: Uh, probably up there with one of my favorites, for sure. I think my first two favorites would have to be the first two Quiet Right records, and the next one would be the fourth one with
2: Paul. Okay.
0: Uh, it's definitely just as good as those other records. Maybe not as successful, but it's, it's definitely probably equally as good in many ways, you know?
2: Yeah, you're just not happy with the third one at all?
0: The third record, uh, probably not as happy as some of the other records. I think uh, Spencer was trying to turn us into a little bit more of a commercial uh, direction than I wanted to go,
2: personally. Yeah, well, I'll I'll leave you go and enjoy the rest of your day. And um, thanks for that record. I absolutely love it. Thank you so much, Richard. All right, and have a good rest of the day, okay? You too, buddy. All right, Carlos. Thanks very much. Bye. Take
1: care. All right. Once again, thanks to Carlos Cavazo for taking some time out to talk to Richie all about the uh, the QR release from Quiet Riot. And if you want to hear some more conversations with Carlos, one thing you could definitely do is check out uh, Bob Nelbandian's. Inside LA Metal series, especially the uh, the earlier ones, because of course, Carlos was a part of Snow as well as Max Havoc, which were two bands that played a big part of the early days of LA Metal. And really, just besides the whole Carlos conversations in those DVDs, they're just an awesome set of DVDs to have. So I would just urge any of our listeners to go out and pick up all three volumes of Bob's Inside LA Metal. And with that being said, what do you say we switch over and go into our conversation that Richie had with Paul Shortino?
4: Hey, this is Paul Shortino, formerly of Quiet Riot, currently with King Cobra and raiding the Rock Vault in Las Vegas. You're listening to Focus on Metal here with Scott Thompson. Keep rocking. Good morning, Richie.
2: Yeah, hi, Paul. How are you? Good. Nice to talk to you again. You too. Paul, the reason I have you on is um, I spoke to Carlos Cavazzo a few weeks ago all about the Quiet Ride album. It's 30 years old in October, I believe. Oh, wow. So I was figuring I'd, I would I'd get into that a bit. Okay, cool. But I do want to ask, um, how's Rating the Rock Fault going for you?
4: It's going great. Yeah? You know? Yeah, it keeps my voice rocking. You know, Uh, actually, my voice is in better shape from the show because I'm singing six to five nights a week, and uh, it's just great for the muscle, the voice, and uh, I think my voice has gotten better um, from doing the show, Um, and it's just uh, it's, it's just an awesome. It's a great great job doing great songs and uh, being in the music business to have a job that, you know, I live five minutes, maybe 10 minutes from the hard rock right now. And before I lived about the same for all the, all the venues we've been, we were in the, um, uh, it was the LVH, which used to be the international and then the Hilton where Elvis, uh, started performing and that's where the show started. I helped get the show in there and hooking the uh, producers up with, uh, people that were the, uh, Rick White, the entertainment director of the hotel.
3: Okay.
4: And, um, and then we were there for about a little over, about a little over a year and a half. And then we moved to the Tropicana and, uh, we were there for a little over a year and a half as well. So it's going on its fifth year. It's been number one musical for the last four years. And, uh, it's being, uh, we're right now into the process of the best show in or voting best shows in Las Vegas, best tribute, best musical. We were the best musical for the last four years. Wow. So, uh, it's great. It's great working with a bunch of great guys. Um, uh, great attitudes, you know um so it's, it's it's been a really great journey
2: yeah is it is it easy to do the show now but like robin is off doing michael Schenker shows and every so often andrew freeman will go off with last in line or he's doing lies deceit and treachery now the guys out of bullet boys like who slots in there to sing their songs
4: uh well there's um right now when robin's gone there's three of us there's me martin bulls and, and andrew so and then we have a female singer, so we pick up the slack. Okay. And uh, and then when Andrew's gone, there's me, uh, Mark, and Robin. And then when I'm gone, I've done some <clears throat> things with Rough Cut and mm-hmm. some King Cobra things. And when I'm gone, and then we have some uh, other subs. We have Todd Kearns, who uh, uh, is currently in uh, Slash's band mm-hmm. uh, with uh, – uh, and then also, um, uh, John Basahas has been here and did some shows, who sings for the babies. Um, but mainly, uh, those are the two guys that have come in. Uh, Keith St. John has come in a few times.
3: Yeah.
4: So we've had a few guys, a few people come in. However, uh, we've been able to cover it. Pretty much with the four singers that we've had, which is myself, Mark, Andrew, and Robin.
2: Okay. What, what about the guitar players? Is it still the same rotating cast of players?
4: Yeah. We have Dave Amato, Howard Lees, uh, Doug Aldridge. Uh, he came back for a while now. He won't be probably back for a while. And uh, Tracy, he's been out for a long time.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, so I I don't know if they'll be coming back anytime soon or, uh, but the door is always open for all those guys and uh, just stuff just kind of revolves around their schedule, and then we have uh, Rowan Robertson right now, yeah, and, um, and then we have Phil Susan on bass and um, uh, Hugh McDonald are the rotating bass players and we have a few other subs that come in, um, guy Andy that was playing with. Um, Marilyn Manson, yeah, a local guy here, and and then um, on drums we got Blas Elias, and because yeah. um, Jay's out with Yes, so he was sub. He used to be the sub for Jay, and now he's the main guy. And then we have some other drummers that come in. Matt has come in before, and and um, a guy named Corky who uh, is a blue man group and has a band here in town. Really good drummer, hmm. uh, and then um, uh, on the keys is Michael T. Ross. But that's uh, and then we have the girls that rotate, which is uh, Sean Coy, uh, Lily Ars. Sean is with uh, Deweasel Zappa and, um, and Meatloaf, and works with him on, on and off. And then um, and then we have Megan Ruger, who was uh, a voice. Actually, from that TV show, The Voice. Okay. So uh, those are the girls singers, and uh, and then we rotate. You know, when and, and when somebody goes out, we just kind of pick
2: up the slack. Yeah, wonder...
4: we've had it to where two guys have been out where we had to bring in a sub.
2: <laughs> I think Paul, it must be logistically difficult to do that a show like that because the musicians are they're such good players that they could get a call to go out with a a band on the road. Like, like Jay is out with. Yes. You, you mentioned like that. At any drop of a hat, they could be gone for a while. Right. So right. How do you keep, is it difficult to keep the core guys there because, and plan ahead because it that must be difficult to do.
4: Well, that's why they have, you know, a bunch of guys that are subs,
3: mm-hmm. you
4: know, the, the, the musician part, would uh, they have enough guys? They have two companies of people,
3: uh-huh.
4: up to three, and guitar players and stuff. So, and there's some local people here that know the stuff as well. So, if there's ever a, we get in a, a pickle, then we have somebody to step in. Uh, even if somebody can't make it, uh, from Los Angeles into Las Vegas, cause a lot of, some of the guys live there and some of the guys have there. Yeah. Um, then, uh, there's a few people here in town, hopefully that they're available. We haven't ran into that problem yet. We've ran into a problem where Robin was out. Um, Andrew was out and we had to bring in another singer who had only been to show a few times. So that's when you have to pick up other slack. They may not be familiar with this song or that song. So,
2: Yeah. Do you find, Paul, that um, even since you've moved to Vegas, that there's a lot of musicians that might have lived in L.A. or somewhere like that that have moved to Vegas to live?
4: Uh, yeah, there's a, it's just a really booming town right now with everything going on. It's probably one of the fastest-growing cities in the probably in the world the way they're building, like they're building the Raiders stadium. They're going to put a, uh, they have the T-Mobile here with a hockey team. And then they're actually building a baseball stadium for a pro team. Wow. You know, Vegas never had any pro sports, you know, mm-hmm. because of the gambling situation here. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably why they didn't.
2: I want to go back a little bit before quite riot. Um, what do you think the the biggest mistake that Rough Cut made early on in their career? Not letting Ronnie
4: James Dio produce the album. Okay. Um, because the record would have come out a year, maybe two years earlier, and I think the window that we waited for to see what Ted Templeman would, because he signed the band to Warner, and he was going. We wanted him to produce the record, and we went. we waiting for him because he was in the middle of recording a record with Lindsey Buckingham and a record record with uh, Eric Clapton at the time. So we were waiting around, we thought, because he he signed us, then the label would have gotten really behind us. And um, it would have changed probably all the whole outcome. I think the timing would have changed the outcome. Not that I, I, I regret recording with Tom Allen or Jack Douglas, but I, I, I think that our record would have come out before a lot of the other records that had come out in the 80s. And I think we would have been in that, that doorway because by the time I think Rat, Dockin, and them were all out, their records were out about a year before our record was
3: mm-hmm.
4: out. So if Bronnie would have produced it, it would have come out around the same time that Rat, Dockin, and, and all those bands, Motley, and everybody were actually uh, smelling sweet success in quiet riot you know yeah. cuz we all were playing around town i mean rough cup was playing and kevin hadn't put quiet riot back together yet he was doing to grow yeah after the first uh, umbrella of quiet riot with randy and kelly garney and uh, kevin and i can't remember the bass players name or the drummer's name but of the first lineup but However, that um we used to see Kevin at the Troubadour and stuff and uh, he was putting the new Quiet Riot together, you know, but at that time it was DeBro. And I think Frankie Benelli was playing with him. I don't know if Carlos was or not. Okay. In DeBro. Okay. Um, so so I, I'm not really sure of that part of that history on their end. So don't quote me on on any of that. I mean I mean, as far as I know that umbrella of players were that I'm not sure if Carlos was in the bro or not. Uh, I know he was in snow and then Kevin got him. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure, uh, where Rudy came, came into the picture, but I know that that lineup with Rudy, Carlos, Frankie, and Kevin was the big money, Mm -hmm. um, was the big success anyways, that they, uh, so I think that, that if Ronnie would have, uh, uh, I just found out from Angelo Curry, you know, that him and Ronnie wanted to do the record because he, he mixes the Rating the Rock Ball. He's the sound man over there. Okay. At the hard rock. And so uh, he shared with us. Some, I guess Wendy, um want to try to get somebody else to produce this to see if somebody could bring a different, but, uh, part of my voice out or whatever, but I really um, I really enjoyed working with Ronnie in the studio, and I think that it would have been an amazing record no matter what.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, I think it might have been a little raw, more raw, the record, uh, more like his, and probably sonically would have sounded more like Dio's record, yeah. Holy Diver, uh, because Angelo would have been doing the mixing on it, so it would have had maybe the guitar tones would have been different because the guys in rough cut had a different tone than vivian and 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 they had their own things going with the racks and stuff and so uh, that part of it might have sounded a little different but i think it would have been really raw i think it would have it would have changed everything for rough cut i think
2: was the plan? What was your plan? Did you have anything lined up? Well, what
4: happened was is that we were in Japan and Quiet Riot was ahead of us, so we were both touring back to back, and um, I had met every, I'd gotten really close with all the guys doing the Stars, pro, uh, the Hearing Aid project. Yeah. And uh, we got to know each other a little better, um, and I guess what had happened is that in Japan Uh, I'm not sure if Kevin decided to parted ways with them I've never been really clear on that but anyways the band and Kevin they parted ways in Tokyo and and we got back from California I mean we got back from Japan basically there was a rumor around you know that Quiet Riot was looking for a singer and well Wendy did uh, manager so she uh she uh got a roll of them and uh and roughcut had gotten dropped from their label warner brothers and um, so we were looking for a new deal and at the same time um, they uh they asked me to check it out and so in the middle of reporting stuff, I went down and checked out you know, the Quiet Riot thing. Um, probably were recording with them on and off for almost a year, you know. Mm-hmm. But it was like a, it was like probably maybe a month, you know, after I went down and checked them out and asked me to come back again. And we were recording, and um, uh, Wendy thought it would have been a great, move for me to get into a platinum for a career boost it was her idea that i replace kevin and uh, at that time rudy was coming back in the band and white snake at the same time was looking for a bass player too because they would just release their album so uh, rudy came back in the band for, uh, for a while and then uh, he got the dig, gig with, um, uh, white snake and right. Decided to leave. He was back in the band and he had a quiet riot and he decided to go back to house of Lords. Yeah. And so we, now I left quiet. I left rough cut and said, I was going to do the, uh, uh, quiet riot thing. And, um, so I was playing bass for a while in the writing. So we were rehearsing as a trio. Okay. And I played bass. So uh, so we were writing some of the songs. You know, I helped write the bass parts to uh cop and feel and stay with me tonight. And so it was really cool to be playing bass again. So... Uh, that's what happened to that. And then we uh, <laughs> one in the cut three songs, one from a, uh, a writer who wrote Man in the Mirror and whatever we call called, Russ Ballard. Anyways, um, see, where was I at? Um,
2: now, one question before you go any further, Paul. Do, do you know they auditioned John karabi before you?
4: No, I didn't.
2: Yeah, it's in the liner notes for the Rock Handy records, with the reissue. Frankie said he he, he wanted John karabi initially.
4: Ah, that's the news to me. I never heard that before. So that's that's interesting. Yeah. So, oh well. That that's uh that was a good choice. Yeah. But I think I think actually was it
2: Karabi and
0: uh,
2: Motley at that time? No, that was um oh no, that was 90, 92, 93 when he joined Motley. Oh okay okay. Yeah, and this was around eighty nine I think wasn't it? 80,
4: yeah. 88? 88, 89, I think that yeah. was the time period. Well, we went into litigation for a year after cutting three songs. We cut, stay with me tonight. And, um, your time is going to come, which Tommy Lee and Frankie never made the record. Did a, um, uh, drum, drum off between each other in the middle. like a okay. drum war thing. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Never made, never made the uh, the record. That was a Russ Ballard tune. Your time is going to come. I think we recorded one other song. Well, the only song out of that was "Stay with Me Tonight" that made the record. And for a year, we went into uh, renegotiating their whole contract with Pasha, because actually they only had one record to do left to do on Pasha, and then they wanted to go off and go directly with CBS or Columbia, CBS, Columbia, whatever. And um, when Spencer heard me saying, because they kind of kept me a secret, then he he wanted to renegotiate everything. And so they had signed, um, they had a deal, like an old Motown deal. So we went in to renegotiate not just the record deal, but the publishing and stuff like that. So it was a long, a long, long <laughs> process. Really. It was about a year of litigation wow. before we could even get back in the studio. I spent a fortune getting, uh, getting into that band and legal,
2: yeah.
4: legal, uh, fees. And so, uh, once we, um, uh, once we recorded the record but in that year we did a lot of pre-production working on songs and went to japan did some i think it was japan aid and performed there <laughs> before any anything was recorded so
2: yeah did, did 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 you sit down paul as a group and decide what direction the music was going to go in or did you just write songs
4: we just started writing songs and um and we just picked the best songs that we came up with. Um, they wanted to be a little different than, well, with my voice it was more of a bluesy kind of style and voice. So it was interesting where Spencer took me because he took me to places that I never thought I would sing sure. like that, you know?
3: But I was like, I was
4: like, i and a i like, you don't bite. I don't even like, you know, I would never. And he's on the other end of the, you know, through the looking glass there. You know, in the right. control room, and he's going,
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know,
4: I'm going, I got to make sense out of this. <laughs> okay, I had a great rapport with him, though. I really enjoyed working with Spencer. He brought stuff out of me that, uh, that I didn't think I could do. And however, uh, some of the other guys had worked with him for so long, and I don't know what their feelings were, but I know that it was, it was just. The whole thing was really tricky going from a band that was friends and you know, what I, what I missed about the rough cut thing. And when I, uh, got into quiet, Riot, it seemed to become more business. Um, and, um, then we still had camaraderie, but not like, you know, you have with your first band or your first love,
0: you know,
2: yes.
4: you know what I'm saying? It, it mm-hmm. you know, I'm not trying to compare the two. It's just a, it's just a different thing when you're together and you, you go through all. You know, like just like I'm sure Quiet Riot was different with Kevin and all of them from the bottom up when they were touring out of. You know, when you're touring out of a, a Winnebago or, or or cars and you go from that into a nice bus and you've got a song on the radio and you're hearing it everywhere. It's, it's a whole different vibe.
2: Hmm. So you know, yeah. So Paul, what did what did Spencer do to push your buttons in the studio? Like, would he scream at you, or would he, is he the type of guy that would put his arm around you?
4: No, I, I'm, I'm. What's really interesting is <clears throat> most of the rough cut stuff I did, I didn't really have too much guidance from the producers. They would just say, oh, "This guy can sing," and let him just sing. You know, where as I thought it would have been great to have, you know, on some aspects, they would, they would, you know, offer some kind of information. So he would, what, what what was going on with the producers that I'd worked with before is is that they would let me sing and do my thing because they go, he could sing, you know? Huh. And with this situation, it was, he, he wanted Also, he wanted writing credits and whatever he could do to get that, you know, I mean that's what Spencer was. And every song, he's, he's got some writing credit on it, whether he wrote a couple words or a couple little melodies, which usually producers do that, and that's included in their fee. They get paid up front, and they get a certain amount of points. And usually when they do that stuff, that, like what Mutt Lang did with, you know, uh, Def Leppard and Shania Twain, you know, I mean, they just, they know what to do and what not to do. And, uh, so anyways, but Spencer gave me a lot of guidance, pulled stuff out of me. Um, not by screaming at me, but just, you know, shooting ideas to me. Uh, we had a really good rapport. We had a really good rapport. Actually I had a very good rapport with all the producers I worked with. And, uh, the difference was, is that Spencer's, Spent a little more time uh, with my vocals, and we had spent a lot of time in writing songs for a year because we were in uh, sorting everything out uh, with the whole new lineup and stuff. So it, um, it was a great, uh, great experience, a great learning experience, um, some great times uh, working there and uh, the band being so close. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and we became really close working that record and working together. And then, um, when it was all done, uh, then that's when the business shit kicked in again. So, yeah, and that and then that was with between the managers.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask you, Paul, about that. Was it a problem that you decided to stay with Wendy? What did the other guys see that as a big issue? Well, I
4: had um, I had no choice.
2: I was already under contract
4: okay with her that's i think that was one of her reasons uh, why she wanted me to to get in the band because rough cut she had ronnie but rough cut was struggling you
0: know mm-hmm.
4: um we were looking for a new record deal and she saw a well if i take the singer and then I, I was under contract with me and put him in quiet riot. Now I've got Ronnie and I'm, you know, connected with quiet riot. Yeah. I think she was looking at it back as that way, you know? And so, um, what was interesting is that we got the management down, uh, instead of 20%, 15% and they were having to split it. So I don't think they were happy about that. And, and, uh, Um, basically what had happened is is that we finished the record and we're ready to do the video and I'm training, getting fit as can be, and going to, uh, private choreographing, uh, with a guy that did cats going to the gym. And then I would go to rehearsal and go first. I'd start out with a uh, workout, go home. Have breakfast, then go and do a dance class, and then go before rehearsal to a private um, choreographing for the song, uh, Stay With Me Tonight, and then go to rehearsal. And I went to rehearsal one day, and everybody was having a meeting without me, and I was going, Wow, what's going on? And it was all because the managers had met. And now that Everything else was done. They had to they had to sort out their stuff, so they didn't want to have Wendy involved in any of it. She was my manager, so she assumed that she was going to have somewhat uh, control of it. And and what's interesting is I got Jimmy Waldo on board, and he was signed to her as a as an artist because she had Alcatraz yep. under contract. So and also Sean McNabb had no management. And she was thinking about signing him. And um, so if she would have signed Sean and with Jimmy and me being signed to her and being in the band. But the band actually was just me, Carlos and Frankie. And the other two guys were side guys. But having that, that many people that in that band, then she would have had somewhat of some kind of pull maybe to pull something uh, as far as I've got more people signed to me than that are in the band. I don't know what what would have happened in, in, in that in circumstances, but like I said, th- we had signed a partnership together, so it wouldn't have mattered.
2: Yeah, yeah,
4: uh, all of that. But I think that was uh, another factor, and so it was just all weird. The whole thing was weird, you know. I mean, if the, if we could have just continued with the music, and the business would have stayed out of it, you know, would have been better for the band.
2: Yeah, look um, looking back on that now, Paul, how do you think that affected your relationship with Frankie and Carlos?
4: Well, um, it got really weird, you know. Cause nobody would speak to me for like two weeks. And I decided just to quit because, uh, nobody was communicating with me. And with, as soon as I did that, then we were all back into a meeting again and trying to sort this stuff out. And it was like, I, I was saying, Hey, why does, why did do these managers, they all work for us, why are we being coming divided?
3: You know?
2: Yeah.
4: Um, they work for us. We just negotiate that not we're not giving them twenty percent anymore. We're we're giving them fifteen percent. And they're not only did they didn't only do that, but in all this year of litigation, because I was fighting for their publishing back because they didn't have their publishing. They signed that all the way with Spencer.
3: Huh.
4: And 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 I think it was. Kevin and Spencer, you know, had a lot of the writing. So uh, the other guys didn't didn't reap anything from that, you know, and they got kind of burnt on that. So there was a bitter taste in their mouth. And when I joined the band, we had to split up everything equally, whether we wrote it or not, and we split it up equally. So here we were in litigation for this, and when it was all said and done, uh, everybody got something back that they never had, you know. Yeah, which and so did their management. So they had, uh, the, the management both had agreed to uh, to work out stuff, and then they came, you know, they they had a meeting, and so they didn't want Wendy to be a part of it. And I can understand because it was Warren Etna's band, and he was their manager first, you know,
3: mm-hmm. and he had every
4: right to feel that way, and so did the band. So. You know, when they had their meeting, the first thing, you know, my manager says to to Warren Etner, "So, what am I supposed to do? Start shopping for a solo deal from for um, my client?" And that set off the whole thing of them not them not talking to me. They thought I was, and I wasn't. I <laughs> I hadn't even been to the meeting. I was I was working out, and and nobody. Uh, nobody would talk to anybody for a couple of weeks. And it was like, wow, I was just like really blown away that this had all happened. And then when we had a meeting they were all sitting there that, you know, you and Wendy came into this thing that changed it all around. And I said, you know, I had said before to them, I said, you know, we're, we're the band. These people all work for us. I don't know why. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, Hey, you know, This is what uh, this is what we want as a band unit, as guys, you know, uh, fine and dandy. Mm. So I I don't know uh, whatever happened. Um, I only know that things got weirder and weirder and weirder. And I wish that we would have done another record. I, um, I think we just scratched the surface of what we we could have done.
2: Yeah. Can I can I ask you, Paul, about just some of the songs that are on the record. Um, don't want to be your fool. I asked Carlos what his favorite song was. And he said that one. Do well, you have any memories of writing that?
4: Yeah. It, uh, it's one of my favorite songs. The rhythm, the vibe of it. And Carlos' solo. And the words. I like the words. I think I, I saw something. that said, don't want to be your fool or something. And it sparked a whole idea to write that song
3: uh-huh.
4: uh, I think Jimmy Waldo um had some changes in the very very, very beginning I think he came up with some stuff Carlos it's just really trippy how that that song came out um yeah that was one of, that was one of my favorite songs stay with me tonight that was a that was a song I wrote in rough cut oh it didn't make it on the second album uh uh-huh. And when we rehearsed it, we changed it around and made it a little different with a different groove. But um the the Frankie came up with a different groove to the whole thing. Okay. And in da 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 da,
2: calling the shots is the I, song actually I, that that. I uh, love Paul. I love that song.
4: Uh, Frankie came up with that lick. He he heard it somewhere, uh, and, and so. He came over one day and and he played this lick, and then we just we went off from that lick and um just came about it's really weird how it all came about, but it, it, that song actually uh there's a uh, marching band that we get royalties from from that that they recorded it oh. It sounds really cool. The marching band, da 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 da, da 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 da, You know, so uh, yeah, those are there, and you know, um, I wrote um, with Carlos and them. Um, um, what is it? Um, I'm copping a feel
3: mm-hmm.
4: um, lyrically. Me and a lady, uh, Mary Dean, is on the record. She uh, she used to write for Motown. She wrote Half Breed for Cher and she was a staff writer. I would write with her. she's on that record a couple of times. She was she wrote the line like uh, Forbidden Fruit Tempting Me. Okay. On um Colin Scott. Da, mm mm-hmm.
3: see. Friday night, I was feeling blue. It wasn't gonna do what I wanted to. Looking fine in your nighty you dress. She's mad, mad at you for letting me so long. I
4: can still remember some of that stuff.
2: Yeah. <laughs> what about? I haven't uh, done it in a long time. What about uh "Run to You"? What are your memories of writing now? Run to you, run to you. I actually uh I wrote that
4: in my living room, and uh, I wrote it about. uh junior my son it's not about a woman it's actually about my son you know but i put it in a relationship kind of thing because i couldn't wait to come home and see him when i was on the road stuff so that run to you you know yesterday is dead and gone my love's so far away meaning my my son's so far away because i was a single father at that time
3: oh. and
4: uh so basically that song is written for, for my being homesick for my son. And yeah, I wrote that in the living room.
2: Okay. And
4: actually I, uh, the, the, chorus,
2: I am want to run do
3: you
4: uh-huh. to go to me. Is a if you think about it, it's like same chord changes
2: as,
3: all of my love, all of my
4: love, all of my love to you. So, I'm gonna run to It's just the same chord change. It's just a different melody. But uh, uh, that that ran through my head uh, when I I was writing, and I went, "Wow, it's, it's the same chord progression." And then you could you know you can sing the different melodies, but it, it was interesting how that song that song just came about. I was like just sitting down and wrote, I wrote the initial part of it. And then as we got together with the band, we, uh, you know, Carlos came up with,
3: <laughs>
4: and I was just watching on uh, some video footage when we tracked that song, the keyboard part. <laughs> I was, um, Actually, looking at some video footage of uh, some home video stuff and my son and I were at Pasha and Jimmy Waldo was tracking that or okay. just just recently. So, uh, yeah, I remember that song. Well, that's that's one of my favorite songs.
2: And what about um, the last track, Empty Promises? That song, that was like one of the last songs we
4: wrote. We went over to Jimmy's house where we did a lot of pre production, and he had this. He came up with that lick, hmm. and we just elaborated on it. I like that song a lot.
3: Yeah.
4: I just like the groove
2: on it.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> the song before that, In a Rush. That's the only one real fast rocker that's on the record. Yeah, yeah, that was a Carlos song. Okay.
4: I don't really remember how that came uh, about in detail. Um, I know I had I wrote the lyrics and everything and everything all of that in the studio with Spencer and um, didn't know really where it was going. You know, sometimes uh, guys can write really you know great stuff to fast songs. It's easier for me to write for ballads. Okay. I guess maybe because I'm more in, uh, in tune with that space. You know, I mean, um, I get the promises of the bass song too, so I love that, but I mean really fast metal, metal songs are, they're just, uh, they're a little difficult, more difficult for me to, to write. It's to hear melodies sometimes, and it's nice to get other um, input and direction from other people to help me out
2: in that. Yeah, yeah. So well, Paul, final question before I leave you go. Did you record any songs that didn't make the record, uh, like full song, or did everything make? Well, we did.
4: We did two. We did three songs in the beginning, and like I said, the only one that made it was "Stay with Me Tonight." And then there was uh, "Your Time Is Going to Come," and there was one other one, but I don't remember what it was. And uh, th- those were the only two songs because we spent so much time uh, in a year. We were able to, which I never had to, uh, the, that kind of uh, luxury to do pre-production in a studio.
3: Uh-huh.
4: Um, and Jimmy had a, a, a Kai a 16 track. They were like a all one in unit with the tape. And that's what we did our pre-production on. And uh, we had everything ready to go after kind of just working on stuff for a year. Um, so when we got in there to record any more songs, we didn't have any extra songs. We knew exactly what we were gonna do when we went in there. So. Okay.
2: okay. Well, Paul, I'm gonna leave you go. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you again.
4: Thank you, my friend.
2: Um, God bless you and
4: let's stay in touch, huh?
2: Yeah, I'll try to get out to Vegas for the for the show.
4: Please do, and I, uh, I'll uh, let you know I'm doing a different project right now.
2: So okay uh,
4: it's uh it's uh, it's organic it's acoustic with uh cellos and some violins
2: nice and are you still writing new rough cut material how's that going
4: yeah when we were working on some stuff and we're just kind of i'm i'm working on this solo thing right now so uh we're we're gonna just kind of just amir's out touring so we're just kind of everything's on hiatus with those guys right now so uh I'm. I've got some stuff that I've been working with uh, a guy named Nozomi Waki, uh, a Japanese guy. Just released a record with um, uh, Marco Mendoza's on the record, and uh, I think uh, Aldridge. Okay. Not Doug Aldridge. Not Doug, but uh,
2: Tommy, Tommy Aldridge. Aldridge. Tommy, yeah.
4: Yeah, yeah, and uh, also uh, the singer that did some stuff with uh, Richie Blackmore.
2: Oh, um, the
4: Spanish. This the yeah. Spanish guy. Well, we just start. We started working on a record last year, and uh, or the beginning of this year, and uh, so he's he released his own solo record. So uh, we almost had the record finished. So we're doing a record together.
2: Nice. And
4: uh, so uh, I'll send you some of that in, that stuff when it's very heavy stuff. Lovely. So I'll send you some of that stuff uh, when I get finished with it. So
2: okay. God
4: bless you, and thank you so much for your time as well.
2: All right, Paul. Have a good rest of the day. You too. Okay. You have a great life. I will. Bye -bye. Bye.
1: go one final sample track from quiet riots qr that one's called as you may have figured out in a rush and i actually had a definite reason for playing that one and that's the fact that i think richie is trying to sneak in rush references without me noticing because hugh Syme was the guy who created all of the classic rush cover artwork so everyone who sees that stuff they know that that's Hugh's stuff but then of course you know who did the Kingdom Come self-titled debut album artwork well Hugh Syme and then this week I just happened to notice that uh, who does the artwork for uh, the QR album Hugh Syme again so I think Richie's been just very uh very cleverly trying to sneak in Rush references on us without us realizing it, but I think we're on to them. And, you know, since we're on the subject of cover art, just got to recommend a couple good cover art books to you if you're interested. There's the one that DeMartin Popoff put up a few years ago called Fade to Black, which is an awesome, awesome uh, metal hard rock album art book that uh, Martin did a great job with. And then there's another one that he did with Malcolm Dome. It's called The Art of Metal. That one's even got a forward by Lemmy. So another great book all about uh, about metal art. So if you want to learn a little bit about metal artwork and have a feast for your eyes at the same time, those are definitely two great books. And Martin is, uh, by coincidence, involved in both of them. So again, Fade to Black. And the other one is called The Art of of metal. So thanks to Paul Shortino for coming back on the show for I believe this is his third appearance with us. Always great to talk to Paul and he's always got some great stories and always got stuff going on, tons of stuff going on. And if you want to keep up with everything that uh, he's got going, you can also head to paulshortino.com and from that page you can also get over to the Rating the Rockfall page which can let you get tickets and all that good stuff. So uh, pretty much one-stop shopping there, paulshortino.com. And if you're on that main page, you can look up on the upper right-hand corner, and all the social media links are there as well. And speaking of links, one place you can always find Focus On Mel Available is at earpeeler.com. Great folks over there, friends of ours, and you can get all of your audio, video, podcast all in one spot And uh, lots of stuff to see and hear over there. And also, while you're there, why don't you go over to their merch shop. Help support Ear Peeler. Because, you know, doing stuff like this is definitely not a free ride. There are costs involved. And it's always good to get a little help along the way. So Ear Peeler has set up a great shop of stuff that you can get branded with the Ear Peeler name, even golf ball. If you want to have Ear Peeler golf balls, go to their merch section and you can get it. So once again, be sure to check out our friends over at EarPeeler.com. And then of course for us, you can always go to FocusOnMetal.net which is our main site, which is pretty much just our way of being able to give you every show that we've been running since 2010. All of that's there on our episodes page. You know, little short bios, all that good stuff. But also you can get us on Focus FocusOnMetal.blogspot.com, which is where we keep our show notes. You want to talk to Richie? He's always available up on Facebook. And I am always there manning the Twitter feed. So that's it. There ain't no more for this week. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! What else is insignificant? <sighs>